And it's a very great honor indeed for me to have this privilege to introduce the speaker because his accomplishments are not local in any sense of the word. They're quite national in scope. Originally from New York City, graduate of UCLA in California, professor of history down in Texas, in Houston. Uh, he has spoken before this round table, I understand, four previous times. And in fact, uh, the occasion of his last address here, I remember quite vividly because it was uh, the second evening that I had appeared as a member of this round table. And little did I ever imagine that I would have the honor and privilege of introducing this gentleman this evening. And he spoke at that time on a uh, rather controversial topic, but very timely with regard to the uh, uh, President Johnson impeachment trial, were ongoing at the same time the uh, discussion was uh, with regard to President Nixon. So this evening he is uh, joining us once again with uh, a controversial subject in which he has forewarned me is going to include some remarks about the recent film that was uh, shown in movie theaters in the area. So it's a very high honor indeed for me to represent or to present to you our speaker this evening, Dr. Harold Hines. I would not 
open by saying that I dragged this out of my pocket simply because they are here. It is by a woman, by Felicia Lamport. The title will have nothing in particular seemingly to do with what I'm here to talk about, uh, which is the question uh, whether the, the scholarship on the Lincoln murder has been an exhaustive thing. The title of this poem is, It Takes a Heap of Compost to Make a House a Mess. <laughs> come live with me and be my love, wrote Marlowe. But he meant, come post with me and rise above the Ravagani scent, exuded while bacterial activities convert old carrot tops and cereal to rich, nutritious dirt, thus proving that the opal piles we've lived so long among can be subdued by nature's wiles until God's will be done. <laughs> it is not about gods, but about alleged scholarship that I put in the category of swill and dung that I come to speak with you uh, this evening. In a sense, it's a peculiarly appropriate time to talk about the question of Lincoln murder conspiracy literature for in the last few weeks. The Congress has reinvestigated the John Kennedy murder uh, in, in Dallas with a reenactment of shootings, sound effects, etc. Uh, the question of Martin Luther King's <coughs> murder and possible conspiracy beyond the incarcerated alleged assassin or convicted assassin. And, of course, the rumors of the murder of Pope John Paul have graced <laughs> the newspapers only in the last few weeks. So, in a sense, the continuing question of the Abraham Lincoln conspiracy thesis revival has a sort of a grim, gallows, humorous quality that doesn't make me chuckle at all, but that at least deserves continuing attention from the viewpoint of repugnance at what recently has been done uh, with the matter. Let me quote, therefore, in the beginning from a letter that John P. Usher, who was Lincoln's interior secretary, wrote to Ward Hill Land, Lincoln's former law partner, Lincoln May, District of Columbia, Marshall. A letter that uh, was written in 1885, quote, it will be a comfort to those who knew Lincoln and were intimate with him, if the dead can be comforted, to die and be gone. We are saluted daily by the damnedest trash and fiction about Lincoln. This is 1885, just 20 years after Appomattox, 20 years after the murder. We are saluted daily by the damnedest trash and fiction about Lincoln. Lies respecting things possible and impossible. I mentioned this to Judge David Davis of the U.S. Supreme Court, before we continue. And the answer from Justice Davis was, quote, yes. But what is the use of correcting it? End of Judge David Davis's response. I want to consider the two sad points that Usher and Davis made in 1885. First, I want to survey aspects of general American historical writing since 1865, and in that context, the accumulating literature on Lincoln's murder, and estimate if the latter deserves Usher's label damnedest trash and fiction, lies respecting things possible and impossible. 
Second, I want to try to deal with Justice Davis's impressing response about the uselessness of careful historianship ever to balance matters. Remember, he wrote, quote, but what is the use of correcting it? End of quotation. So to Usher's first point, trash and fiction, with which I fully agree. A venal exploitation of Lincoln, of his widow, and of his murderers came into being after 1865, as an analogous kind of hucksterism came into being after the 1963 John F. Kennedy killing. And this huckstering and pandering had never ceased for Lincoln or for Kennedy. Sensational plays, films, and TV offerings, garish books, near obscene caricatures, articles in undercounted periodicals, and headline newspaper columns on the Lincoln murder were and are largely garbage. Happily, much of this crude ephemera quickly disappeared. But as with pornography then and since, successes appear and appear with nauseating frequency. Through such media, rumors persisted well into the 1900s and were rebroadcast in the 1977 Schick Sun Classic Companies. And every time I say that, I'll just go Schick Sun Classic, because how to say it. In the 1977 Schick Sun Classic Company's book and film called The Lincoln Conspiracy, uh, which was rebroadcast on TV more, more recently. Uh, that this is the idea of that book and film and TV broadcast, that John Wilkes Booth had not died at Richard Garrett's Virginia Park. Instead, it was claimed, a ringer was buried in his place with high government officials connivance some gossipers insisted. Booth escaped to Mississippi, to Texas, to Mexico, to Europe, or to India. Take your pick. Carnival shills peddled Booth relics, such as locks of hair, nail clippings, and smoking pipes, to credulous rooms, and this is still being done in country carnivals, especially in the South. Very recently, perhaps even uh, as I'll try to suggest, one of the authors of this Lincoln Conspiracy book, a sophisticated Hollywood and Salt Lake City entrepreneur, not, I think, a gullible hayseed, in the 1970s tracked down an entire squad of mummified corpses in search of John Wilkes Booth. Little wonder that, as Usher noted to Lyman in 1885, Lincoln's former friends and associates and present scholarly detectives were and are distressed. <laughs> Amateur and professional scholars have also paid sharp attention to Lincoln's murder and to the trial of the conspirators. The murder, like the Civil War, was one of that generation's central events. Despite the growth of the political and literary rhetoric of violence until 1865, almost no American official ever suffered physical attack of any sort. Amateur writers of a large, general, historical, biographical, and autobiographical literature that appeared in print 1865 to 1885, with 1885 just when John Usher wrote that letter, concentrated on the war's causes, on Reconstruction's conduct and achievements, and on Lincoln's murder, and on the rectitude of the assassins' trials and fates. Then, in the mid-1880s, just about when Usher wrote his complaining letter, amateur historians were joined by an augmenting core of professional scholars, the first modern history PhDs, from Johns Hopkins University first and then from elsewhere. Assumptions became common among these scholars that history must become scholarly, 
and must use the techniques of the newer social, behavioral, and physical sciences, a lure that some writers, including historians, swallow every generation. Now we use computers as example. Contemporary determinisms adapted from Darwin, Freud, and Marx were accepted, often with remarkable uncriticality, as explanations for a nation's policies and for individuals' motives. Such assumptions deeply affected or infected the new history as it developed in the 20th century and gave seeming credence, oddly enough, to uh, conspiracy theses on many subjects, such as the causes of wars, Charles Beard's uh, book about the uh, Franklin Roosevelt allegedly tickling the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor so the United States could sell Houston to the Russians and so on. Social science-minded new historians, amateurs and professionals alike, revised earlier depictions of the civil war's causes and of the conduct of Reconstruction and of Lincoln's murder and of the ensuing trial. Notable amateurs included, in alphabetical, not chronological, or merit order, Albert Beveridge, Claude Bowers, David DeWitt, Alan Nevins, James Ford Rhodes, Carl Sandberg, Benjamin Thomas, Bernard DeVoto, and others, of course, that one may list. And of course, one may argue if such people as Alan Nevins or Ben Thomas or Amateur, but I list them simply uh, as a convenient category here. Professionals of the newer breed included Charles Beard, John Burgess, Avery Craven, W.B. Du Bois, William A. Dunning, William B. Hesseltine, James Randall, and Woodrow Wilson. Taken together, their work established tenacious major lineaments of our approaches to the Civil War and its aftermath. And then in the 1920s and 30s, after revelations occurred of secret causes of World War I and of the apparently sordid reconstruction scramble for imperial spoils by the Allied victors after 1918, historians began to weave analogic threads into Civil War and Reconstruction accounts. The so-called irrepressible conflict, morally justified by Northern writers uh, in the, after 1865, changed in these later scholarly publications to a so-called needless war, as Avery Craven called it, engineered by conspiratorial entrepreneurs and supposedly corrupt politicos. Reconstruction, like the war, in these accounts became a preventable hypocritical farce, part of which produced, allegedly, Andrew Johnson's supposedly unjustified impeachment. Obviously, I don't agree with any of this scholarship. <laughs> Indeed, Reconstruction supposedly created not racial equality, but what Charles Beard called America's second revolution, the industrial. From these uh, supposedly ignoble causes flowed all of America's recent and present problems, including those of cities, energy, pollution, and race. It was alleged with footnotes. Southern whites loved the new history for obvious reasons. In World War II changed this picture. It was the good war. It generated alternative views concerning the Civil War and Reconstruction, views more like those written by the first generation of writers after the Civil War, such as James Ford Rose. A new generation of historians, we once called ourselves young historians, rediscovered the possibility of morality in conflict, of useful victory, of constructive reconstruction, and of improved racial justice <coughs> even during the global war. Civil rights concerns of the 1960s inspired significant reconsiderations of an analogic concerns of the 1860s and 1870s. Congress, Lincoln, and Lincoln's Republicans were studied and praised as never before. Conspiracy theses diminished, 
in significance. Out of these altered emphases came further revised interpretations on the Civil War and Reconstruction. The North's cause was again seen as nobler than the South's. Morality was again afforded a primary role, and Lincoln's reputation soared ever higher. By 1976, Andrew Johnson's reputation plummeted to Nixonian levels. I don't know who's fighting for the bottom at the moment. And the 1868 impeachment of Andrew Johnson was seen as a desperate but constitutionally necessary and politically appropriate last gasp effort. Then Vietnam clouded this improving analytical scene. Some historians have resurrected very curious mixes of moralisms and social science, of economic causation and conspiracy approaches to history, including that of the Civil War Reconstruction, out of all the emphases about American purposes in Vietnam. These, this new passionate literature leans very heavily for so-called proofs on supplemental social science research techniques applied to history. Well, shall we accept these conspiracy theses with footnotes over that as reliable history? Let's look in detail for a few minutes at the development of the particular literature, amateur and professional, in terms of the, the uh, academic credentials of the authors, uh, about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the trial of the conspirators. The pioneering amateur writer David Miller DeWitt wrote in 1895 the judicial murder of Mary E. Surratt, and then in 1909 the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and its expiation. DeWitt set a tradition that stressed alleged irregularities in the assassin's trial proceedings that implicated high northern public officials in the conspiracy to kill Lincoln, and that concluded that a derivative scheme existed to railroad to the galleys and gallows and prison, persons accused with booty. Note the purplish titles of the wit's volumes, The Judicial Murder of Mary E. Surratt, The Murder of Abraham Lincoln, and Its Expiation. Note also the chronological, chronological intimacy of his books with Usher's despairing query of 1885. DeWitt was a lawyer and a Democratic Party wheel boss. Law, like history and the social sciences, was professionalizing and scientizing itself in the decades 1880-1910. The case method, the paper chase, of legal education had been initiated at Harvard Law School beginning in 1870. DeWitt was a first-generation runner in the legal profession's new style, pages. Law was becoming devoted to the allegedly scientific discovery of basic legal principles, and it confused itself that it was a historical study, a confusion that still exists. Any of you who've seen Raoul Berger's book of 1978, Government by Judiciary, Reexamination of the 14th Amendment, will realize how bad uh, historians, lawyers can be to apply legal research methods to historical. DeWitt applied lawyer-like methods to the murder of Lincoln and to the murderous trials. He used almost exclusively as a source Ben Hurleypour's edition of the 1865 trial testimony and the 1867 and 1868 Andrew Johnson impeachment investigation proceedings, plus the 1867 John Surratt trial testimony. 
He ignored virtually all supplemental testimonies, such as diaries, autobiographies, memoirs, and collected letters published or unpublished. What resulted from DeWitt, which became the basic source <coughs> for others to use, was a factually useful but analytically sterile polemic against the trial of civilians by military commissions, aimed primarily at discrediting that old Democrat turncoat become Lincolnian Republican, Edmund M. Stanford. Lawyer DeWitt never asked, as an adversary lawyer never asks on behalf of his opponent, Lawyer DeWitt never asked if prevailing standards of civilian justice in 1865, 6 or 7, especially the Virginia Rules of Procedure that then governed District of Columbia civil courts, could have produced fairer results for the conspirators than the Army board that trial day. He ignored the fact that contemporary Virginia court procedure forbade Negroes from testifying, the Army Commission permitted Negroes to testify uh, when whites were involved, and prohibited any criminal defendants, Virginia law prohibited any criminal defendants then from speaking in their own defense at all. The Surratt military court allowed both. The one uh, DeWitt insisted that the, 1870, the 1867 deadlock in John Surratt's civil court trial was a vindication of Mrs. Surratt, his mother, in 1865, which is an insupportable logic to anybody but a lawyer. <laughs> in 1943, the amateur writer Helen Jones Campbell carried on DeWitt's anti-Stanton tradition in a historical novel contrived by the author and publisher who looked like historical Scholarship. She put footnotes in, and people actually mistook the footnotes, some of the totally stories, uh, for careful historians. The book is called The Case for Mrs. Surratt. No hiding the attitude. It manufactured introspective thoughts. What did Mrs. Surratt think as the gallows opened before her? Who knows? And so on. Not to his credit, Philip Van Doren Stern employed similar misleading contrivances in his 1939 book, The Man Who Killed Lincoln. Although Stern at least identified as fictions, the conversations he intruded into his account. Guy Moore's 1954 book, The Case of, not for, Mrs. Surratt, is sympathetic to her nevertheless, but it is more objective than DeWitt or Stern. Nevertheless, the Moore book is so narrow in scope as to be almost irrelevant for use in studying the wider theme of Lincoln's rape. DeWitt and other conspiracy-minded writers proved to be preliminaries to someone that many of you know, who many of you know very well here. Uh, DeWitt and other conspiracy-minded writers were preliminaries to chemist become history buff Dr. Otto Eisenschimmel. Over 30 years, the late Dr. Eisenschimmel created the one-man industry of pseudo-historianship about Lincoln's murder and the assassin's case. And he inflated enormously a conspiracy thesis that has Stanton as the center of the Republican cabal against Lincoln. Professor Thomas Reed Turner is the closest student of Dr. Eisenschimmel's numerous publications. Professor Turner has noted recently in a book that will be in print very soon if it isn't already from Louisiana State University Press. He noted recently that Dr. Eisenschimmel claimed to apply laboratory methods to historical research. Turner described Eisenschimmel's actual technique as follows, quote, he raised provocative questions, and even though in many cases he, Dr. Eisenschimmel, admits that the orthodox answer is still correct and proven otherwise, he created unwarranted doubts. With this technique, the question oftentimes became more important than the answer. 
It is a very clever method, this is Professor Turner talking, for it allows the author, Dr. Eisenschimmel, to maneuver out of tight spaces by claiming that he merely asked a question while refusing to take credit for the implied but unsupportable response. And the quotation from Professor Turner. Dr. Eisenschimmel vigorously defended his technique in his 1940 publication titled Reviewers Review, a Challenge to Historical Critics, published by the Clements Library at Ann Arbor, Michigan. But his defense employed the techniques being defended. It failed utterly to give it credence among campus historians. And incidentally, let me add that I claim no omniscience for campus historians. Whatever the defects of his method, Dr. Eisenschimmel did not, like other conspiracy writers, invent dialogue. But he did inspire disciples. Ex-mystery novelist and freelance writer Theodore Roscoe remembering a boyhood glimpse of what was supposed to have been Booth's pipe, remember those relics in the Congress, in 1959, published a book called The Web of Conspiracy. It also has Stanton conspiring with the War Department Chief of Detectives Lafayette Baker in the Lincoln murder. Now, historians properly ignored Roscoe's book. It wasn't reviewed in any of the scholarly media. Uh, I'll give you a list of the names of academic historians who turned it down, refusing to waste review space in journalism. It's unworthy of serious notice. Swill and dumb with footnotes. Nevertheless, Roscoe's book requires a little bit of an aside in this account. Roscoe, in the early 1970s, became one of the expert historical consultants, according to the publicity blurbs. Uh, called an eminent historian consultant for the Ship Sun Classic Picture Company. And according to a Ship Sun Classic press release, Roscoe's 1959 book, The Web of Conspiracy, quote, came under open attack by the Federal Secret Service during the government always tells you the truth here, this is in italics, an allusion, I suppose, to the Lyndon Johnson Nixon years, and the publisher, this is quotations, the Prentice Hall, was forced to let the Roscoe book go out of print, and the quotation from the Schick Sun Classic Press release about the film and TV and this paperback book on the Lincoln murder. Well, I'm a historian and I like to go to the sources and I went to a great research enterprise, I wrote a letter. <laughs> and in a letter, uh, November 22nd, 1977, I wrote a letter to Mr. Peter Rehnquist, the president of Prentice Hall, a firm I know well. I, I don't know Mr. Grenquist personally. I asked him to comment on Schick Sun Classic Pictures press release that Prentice Hall publishers had knuckled under to some unnamed U.S. government official, U.S. Secret Service, according to his press release, with the result that Roscoe's book went out of print, and I now quote, with his permission, Mr. Grenquist's reply, quote, in a letter dated March 4, 1973, Mr. Theodore Roscoe requested Prentice Hall that all publication rights to his book, The Web of Conspiracy, be reverted to him, and we, Prentice Hall, did so in accordance with our contract. I can think of no way in which the Federal Secret Service or other government agency or representatives could possibly put pressure on our company, Prentice Hall, to make any book go out of print. End of quotation from Mr. Grant. No author is responsible for publicity releases, I understand. <laughs> but the writers of publicity releases, although they are bound by no agreed standards of accuracy or even decency, uh, 
in promoting the book and film The Lincoln Conspiracy that has shaped some classic publicity writers have made much of the alleged scrupulosity about facts and the alleged uh, research enterprise that Schick, some classic, uh, entered into in producing that garbage. Mr. Roscoe, or Schick, some classic pictures, or Mr. Grandquist of Prentice Hall, is lying or incorrect about their relationship. And I can only leave it on like that except to say that the burden of proof is on Shitsum Classic Pictures, perhaps on Theodore Roscoe. Not on me, I'm just quoting. Back to the major narrative about, Lincoln, about the Lincoln assassination conspiracy literature of the double. Now entered into the scene, Indiana State University at Terre Haute Professor of Health, Physical Education, and Recreation, <laughs> Doctor of Education, Ray Neff who has since become a major supplier of manuscripts and of other documents to shape some classic pictures. In 1961, Dr. Neff published a text of what may be an 1868 CIFA message allegedly of Detective Lafayette Baker's composition. At that time, in 1961, Dr. Neff fairly cautiously suggested that this code message tightened the evidential net around Stanton and incriminated, allegedly, Baker himself in the uh, conspiracy to kill Lincoln, uh, according to Neff's analysis. The intriguing decoded message that Neff worked out leads, I think, to no verifiable conclusion. It is intriguing. It adds to the uncertainties and the ambiguity. It leads to a question. Would Baker incriminate himself by getting a message incriminating himself even in a code that anybody can crack. Uh, it's, I find it a little difficult to credit, but I, it, I, it's impossible to say it's impossible. Was this a malignant joke by Baker? A malignant joker? An inveterate liar? But then I think the Baker-coded message remains, and no careful scholar takes it further. On Professor Neff, more later. Then Mr. Vaughan Sheldon, took other flimsy evidence, flimsier evidence further. Mr. Shelton wrote a book in 1965 called Mask for Treason. In this book, it's hard to call it a book, but whatever it is. In this book, Shelton insisted that Baker, with Stanton's knowledge, had signed another coded letter, but this time he didn't supply a text, which unleashed Booth at Ford's theater that fateful night. In Professor Turner's judgment, Shelton has a major problem. Quote, Shelton does not possess the necessary depth of historical background to deal with this topic or any other that I know. He sees hidden meanings and seeks quick answers, even when basing it on dubious information and bending and torturing the material to make the evidence fit his theory and the Professor Turner's analysis of Vaughan Shelton's book. And then in 1977, the Lincoln Conspiracy book and film hit the fans, the screens, and the book stands. Authors of the book and producer of the film were and are David, Mrs. David Balziger and Charles E. Sellier, Jr. 
Balziker is a former publicist for evangelical church groups and a self-styled, quote, investigative reporter, end quote, and author also, or ghostwriter, it's a little difficult to tell, of In Search of Noah's Ark and The Backside of Satan. <laughs> he lists himself also as the, quote, historian, end quote, and the technical advisor on the book and film, The Lincoln Conspiracy, for Schick Sun Classic <coughs> Productions. He serves Schick Sun also as director of research development and has collaborated with Mr. Celia on Schick, who is Schick Sun Classic Senior Vice President of Production, they must meet each other, come and enjoy, on the Noah's Ark and Grizzly Adams' Life and Times, uh, Magnum Opi. I put aside the non-academic backgrounds of these entrepreneurs. My admiration remains great for great, gifted, amateur scholars. Messrs. Bolsiker and Sedis have received honorary degrees from Lincoln Memorial University for the Lincoln Conspiracy, which entitles them to be called Doctor. You must determine if their creation entitles them to be called historian. Are the Lincoln Conspiracy book and film more of that damnedest trash and fiction that's still undone about which John Usher Grouse in 1885? If they are, we come to the second sad question he asked that uh, Justice David asked, uh, David Davis asked, what is the use? Incorrectly. In my opinion, the Lincoln Conspiracy book and film hit Usher's trash and fiction categories. And every historian worthy of the name is responsible within the limits of his competence and of ascertainable facts to correct false representation as far as he or she can. I am a layman about films. Some cinema specialists, some of you, uh, consider the Lincoln conspiracy film to be crude and embarrassing, an insult, a waste of money, an artistic and other things. I want to talk about the Lincoln conspiracy book in my professional judgment, it is a rip-off. I come to slang always about 20 years later, so I don't know if this is still current. Despite the book's valued employment, not only of historians' techniques, but also of supposedly scientific supplemental techniques, such as lie detector tests, handwriting analyses, and something called atomic spectrophotometer, uh, which sounds uh, vaguely urological. I'm not sure <laughs> Despite supplemental techniques, uh, including topsological examinations by Dr. Neff, I really don't know, on strands of hair to determine if a corpse, Lafayette Baker's, John Wilkes Booth, I don't know, uh, if a, a corpse they looked at died of arsenic poisoning, plus allegations about discoveries of sensational new manuscripts, which is something I can cope with, uh, which are the basis for several claims, I think the book is still garbage. What are these claims that shit some classic pictures and Dr. Neff and the others involved, uh, according to the publicity blurbs and so on, seem to make. These claims are that John Wilkes Booth was the agent for at least four groups of something called radical Republican congressmen and businessmen. These are the claims. That Stanton and Baker were allegedly involved in one or more of the conspiracies to kill Lincoln. That Booth bundled earlier efforts to kidnap Lincoln and conspirator chieftains dominated by Stanton replaced Booth, but he wasn't even there, with a turncoat Confederate spy named George James Ward Boyd. 
Incidentally, in the Lincoln Conspiracy book, he is misnamed altogether. They call him James William Lloyd. There is no such person involved in this at all. The one they mean is James Ward Lloyd. Uh, now, James uh, Boyd comes up on the basis of material supplied through Schick Sun Classic Pictures by Dr. Neff, the professor of health education, physical, whatever, at uh, Terre Haute. Further, it is claimed that Booth, after all, did kill Lincoln in reverse field, uh, but escaped pursuit, leaving Mary Surratt and the others to face an allegedly weak military trial and leaving Boyd to die at Garrett's farm. The substitution of Boyd for Booth being engineered by Stanford. If you can't follow all of this, don't worry about it. <laughs> all of this is assertedly sustained by Sheikh Sun Classic Pictures' alleged new manuscript sources. These include claimed missing pages of Booth's pocket diary. These include, allegedly also, standard materials obtained from the War Secretary's descendants, according to Schick's Sun Classic publicity letters, by Joseph Lynch, a Massachusetts Americana appraiser and dealer, about whom leaders in those fields appear to know next to nothing. Professor Neff supplies Schick's Sun Classic pictures with other manuscripts, including those about the wrong James Boyd, uh, including manuscripts of Lafayette Baker, and including a manuscript of Lafayette Baker's very low echelon subordinate detective, Andrew Potter. What did Professor Neff get out of all this? I don't know. Whether cash was exchanged, whether it's for a share in the profits of Chick Sun Classic Productions, or sheer love of pure scholarship, uh, it's unspecified. Still further, a descendant of Dr. Mudd allegedly supplied other manuscripts. Now, what becomes terribly unclear as you trace this book, and again, it's difficult to call this thing a book. I have great respect for books. Uh, as it, what becomes unclear about the way this book is put together it is which documents allegedly support which claims, because they're used in several different ways in different parts of the book. Second, uh, it's unclear whether the people who put the book together is put together by a committee, <laughs> whether they actually saw the originals of these alleged new manuscripts at all, whether they verified them if they saw them, or whether they saw them only in transcribed and therefore uncheckable forms. It is disturbingly clear that the Lynch documents were not available in their original form even to shape some classic pictures. He sold them, but only in transcribed form. Mr. Lynch, after, this is the, the documents dealer and appraiser. After finding still another encoded message in one of those transcripts, how these fellows love codes, asserted to Lincoln Law Editor Richard Sloan that he, Mr. Lynch, quote, does not own these materials. The Stanton heirs do, he said. He, Mr. Lynch, was merely able to contract with ships on classic pictures for a tape, not even written, a tape transcript of a small portion of his Stanton descendants' alleged new materials. Lynch has an agreement, this is Lynch talking in the third person, has an agreement with the Stanton descendants whereby both parties must consent to any use or release of the materials and the quotation. Well, Mr. Lynch is a very smart man. He sold, quote, manuscripts, end quote, for a reported $6,500 under these conditions where the buyer never sold the manuscripts but got only a tape 
of the alleged conflict. No one gains access to these purported original manuscripts unless he and the claimed Stanton heirs give green lights to the access. I have tried. I now report failure. I have not been given access to the manuscripts. And somehow I feel that red lights, not green lights, will control this sunset for a long time before anybody sees the originals of the page. Well, this inability to see originals did not bother Schick's son pictures very much. As noted, one of its blurbs uh, states that if the picture firm subjected some of its purchases, manuscript purchases, whether mugs or nets, I suppose they couldn't have been mentioned because these were just tapes, and that they su subject, subjected them to chemical and photographic tests of unspecified form to ascertain age and genuineness. Such tests are not much used for those transcripts, obviously. But even alleged, quote, originals, end quote, must be weighed very skeptically. Certainly printers can now manufacture manuscript originals, so-called, to order so convincingly that they fool actresses and chemists, end quote. But Mr. Balziger, the co-author of the Lincoln Conspiracy book and of Schick, some classic, would not honor my request to allow me to come at my own expense to his Los Angeles or Salt Lake City offices to examine in, in person the net or mud materials, much less the lynch benefits. He is apparently contractually bound, he said, to afford access only to Schick Sun Classics' own historical consultants, some of whom, perhaps including Professor Neff, are allegedly suing Mr. Balziger, that is Schick Sun Classics, for revealing too much in publicity blurbs. Well, I quote Mr. Balziger's reply to my second request for access to the documents. Quote, the majority of the original documents that we utilize remain in the hands of their original owners. When we were satisfied that the documents were authentic to the degree that we were capable of authenticating them, they were generally Xerox, or more frequently, we had a type transcript made. As soon as the film has been played out, and there are no lawsuits filed against the book or the film, we have tentatively agreed to donate all of our research materials to the library at Indiana State University, where Professor Neff teaches. We anticipate this happening within the next 18 to 24 months. It hasn't happened yet. And then he says he can't help me at all. End of the book. But the point is less my frustration or jealousy than that the basic method of historical scholarship, of all scholarship, is the critic's capacity to check a writer's sources. Always the burden of proof is on the writer. If no one else can even see sources, much less verify. And he, the, uh, the, uh, the author, has seen them only in transcripts, not originals. Then the reviewer's evaluations of judgments made from such sources is like punching in foam rubber. Still, punch one must. Permit me to begin punching with the Lincoln Conspiracy Books footnoting. There is no mystery about footnotes. Their primary function is to permit a reader to check on the author's sources in order to judge if the author's judgments are reasonable within the source's limitation. The historian earns that title as he learns to respect his printed and manuscript sources, to know which are relevant, significant, and current, and to build from each source only reasonable and verifiable conclusions. Footnotes are sacred. Errors in them, apart from mere typos, are serious defects in scholarship. Glaring defects mar 
the documentation, the footnotes, in the Lincoln Conspiracy book, and no disclaimer in a book's preface or in a book's introduction can evade the weight of defective quality. As example, Colonel William Moore, not William Browning, was Andrew Johnson's diary-keeping military secretary. He's totally misidentified by this whole core of researchers that shipped some classic pictures allegedly hired to check everything. Numerous references in the footnoting are the printed sources have no page numbers, have no volume numbers, no edition numbers. Many references to manuscripts lack specification of their archival or other depositories, locations, etc. Variant forms of source names and idiosyncratic spellings of authors and typos pepper the footnote. Considering Shikson Pictures claims to a massive scholarly research effort, its core of allegedly expert historian consultants, and its in-house control over their book product, because they produce both the book and the picture, such slop is unreasonable. But there are other reasons to suspect the Lincoln Conspiracy's footnote. To show my modernity in this computer-dominated world, I counted, but without the computer, I counted the footnotes. There are, I think, 1,108 footnotes in the Lincoln Conspiracy book. If I think so, because some of them wander around and lack a beginning or an end. But that's the best number I can offer. 1,108 footnotes. I hope you'll keep in mind my suggestion a few minutes ago that a footnote is a substantive, sacred kind of thing. Of the 1,108, I suggest, I conclude that about 500 are from unreliable printed sources and or are unverifiable because of chick sun pictures slop and unreasonableness. And at least 20 more are from such scholarly exotica as True Magazine, <laughs> Milton Schutz, 1957 book called Lincoln's Emotional Life, <laughs> Mabel Kunkel's 1976 book called Abraham Lincoln, Unforgettable American, and a potpourri of elementary, college, U.S. history textbooks. Well, let's look at the textbooks. Several of the textbook authors are my personal friends. All are co-professionals. They would all agree, I believe. With my admonition to shape some classic historical consultants and researchers that freshman college textbooks are not proper research sources for serious scholarship. <laughs> well, so far, then, in my count, approximately 180 footnote sources, which are already 20% of the total, are unreliable. Next to the unverifiable, allegedly newly discovered manuscript, including the allegedly missing Booth Diary pages, isn't it? Booth Diary is much more a sort of a pocket notebook that Booth carried around just to buy vegetables, uh, do this sort of thing, and that it doesn't say assassinate the president of Congress. Next, the unverifiable, allegedly newly discovered manuscripts, including the missing book diary pages, and including the, the alleged Stanton letters obtained from what people are supposed to be his descendants, that Mr. Lynch sold the Schick's Sun classic pictures only in transcribed form, and that Schick's Sun classic pictures will not permit any outsiders to examine it. The Lincoln Conspiracy book employs the Lynch transcripts in footnotes between 80 and 100 times. And I have to be very here, because it's very hard to tell just what some of the footnotes refer to. 
So this raises the uneasy footnote total from about 30% of the whole number. 0% is cost for reliability. Mm -hmm. Next we come to a whopping 225 unreliable footnotes, approximately, that one way or another refer readers to Professor Neff's store of documents down in Terre Haute. Why do I doubt the reliability of Dr. Neff's so-called collection? That's what it's called in the footnotes, the Neff collection, as the footnotes call them sometimes. Some of these alleged documents refer to oral telephone information given by Mr. Neff to Schickson Lincoln conspiracy staff. As with the Lynch items, no qualified third person can verify these documents. Indeed, it may be that Dr. Neff claiming that his documents have been verified by experts has in turn acted as the verifying expert for Mr. Lynch. <laughs> Most important, Dr. William C. Davis, the editor of Civil War Times Illustrated, who considers Professor Neff to be, quote, sincere but gullible, end quote, <laughs> has offered wholly convincing reasons derived from facts, not from inferences. For placing Dr. Neff's purportedly newly discovered manuscript, such as Detective Potter's, remember that fellow who was a subordinate of Lafayette Bakers, uh, for placing these footnotes in, in the uneasy phalanx. Recall that Dr. Neff's so called Potter papers, they're not called the Neff collection any longer, they're now jumped and they're called the Potter papers. <laughs> Recall that Neff's Potter papers inspired Messrs. Balsaker and Seniors, at Shakespeare's son, classic to assert, as if it were a new notion, that Booth had not died in April 1865, and that allegedly proved that Stanton and other high government officials uh, supposedly had turncoat Confederates by James War Boyd uh, killed and secretly buried in April 1865 in order to cover up, no pun intended, their complicity in the conspiracy. This is the basic structural premise of the Lincoln conspiracy book and film. Unfortunately, for the credibility as historians of Balsaker, Sellers, Neff, and other consultants, who presumably verified the so-called Potter disclosures through Dr. Neff, uh, Dr. Davis, Professor Davis of Civil War Times Illustrated, presented verifiable documentation in print that James Boyd died on January 1st, 1866, not in April 1865, eight months after the Lincoln conspiracy account of the end of his life. And he died provably in Tennessee, not in Virginia. Dr. Davis, in gentlemanly manner, telephoned Dr. Neff to tell him in advance of publishing the Civil War Times Illustrated issue containing Dr. Taylor's, or Dr. Davis's correction. Telephoned him in advance that the boy depiction in the Lincoln Conspiracy book appeared to be wrong in every particular, including Neff's and Shinsung's dependence upon the wrong boy. It seems to be a fairly substantial problem to have the wrong body in the wrong place at the wrong time. I quote now Dr. Davis's account of his telephone conversation with Dr. Neff. Quote, when reached by telephone, Dr. Neff did not have his files on these documents at hand and could not remember where some of the documents were obtained, or from whom. Faced with the above irrefutable documentation on the real death of Captain James W. Boyd, Dr. Neff, of Captain James Boyd, Dr. Neff could only comment that there must have been confusion somewhere. 
His initial speculation is that the papers, and here the, I, I insert phrase, his initial speculation is that the papers that Matt Walter and Sanders have used, end of the insertion, must have dealt with another boy. <laughs> we, this is uh, Dr. Davis talking, we will await Dr. Neff's formal statement after he has had an opportunity to re-examine all of the evidence. Meanwhile, we will state that the possibility of such a confusion is remote to say the least. It is simply too much to accept. End of Dr. Davis's quotation in Civil War Times Illustrated. I quite agree. Indeed, it is too much to accept. Let me proceed with Dr. Davis to another profound substantive error in the Lincoln conspiracy that a seventh grader of 1864, I'm not sure about now, nourished on McGuffey's readers, or a modern graduate student in history concentrating in the Civil War, which is about the same level perhaps, <laughs> would have laughed out of a classroom. The Lincoln conspiracy authors and historical consultants apparently swallowing what are assumed to be Lafayette Baker's allegations in Dr. Neff's so-called collection, asked us to believe that Stanton and his co-conspirators so feared Lincoln's defeat in the 1864 election that to prevent anti-emancipation Democrat George McClellan from winning, Stanton plotted to have Lincoln kidnapped before the election, along with Vice President Hannibal Hamlin and Secretary of State William Seward. That's the longest sentence I ever wrote. And I just couldn't interrupt it any place because I lose track of the thought myself when I write it. And I'm sorry that you uh, really, I have to subject you to it. it. It's impossible to make reason out of it. Well, that's the scheme in the Lincoln Conspiracy book. Then, according to the Ship Sun Classic account based on Dr. Neff's documents, the Joint Congressional Committee on the Conduct of the War would name an interim president, thus keeping McClellan out of the presidency until Stanton released Seward uh, from prison, who would take over the White House. This is the supposed conspiracy, the big conspiracy. But, unfortunately for the scheme, of, for this depiction of the scheme, since 1792, the president, pro tempore of the Senate, not the Secretary of State, or anyone named by any congressional committee, would automatically be president if the president and vice president were both dead or disabled. Stanton, one of the nation's best lawyers, and a recent U.S. Attorney General, of course would have known the constitutionally correct presidential succession status. Anybody would have. The Lynch and Neff documents made the Lincoln conspiracy book and film conceive an inconceivable plot. They needed plot contraception. Someone at Chick Sun Classic Pictures swallowed an historical anachronism in which Stanton and Lafayette Baker say and write things they couldn't have said or written because the Constitution succession step simply couldn't go the way the plot has it. It's garbage. So I wrote Professor Neff in January of this year. I inquired about the published criticisms by Dr. Davis of the Lincoln Conspiracy Analysis based upon the Neff manuscript. Professor Neff replied to me courteously, dated January 12th, and he stated, quote, since it is now almost certain that there will be litigation in this matter, it would be imprudent and unwise for me, Neff, to make any statement at this time except to say that it is clear that you have drawn some conclusions which are in error. End of the quotation. He didn't say what. <laughs> Professor Neff then noted that he and Mr. Leonard Guttridge, who I guess to be the ghostwriter of Senator George McGovern's <coughs> 1972 book, The Great Coalfield War, 
that he and Mr. Guthridge had joined forces and will soon publish what Professor Neff called in January 78, quote, a manuscript which will be fully documented and will include answers to questions which have been raised. End the quotation. I checked yesterday, publishes uh, weekly, uh, and through publisher friends, publisher friends, so far, no one knows of any such book entered for publication yet. It may be in preparation still. Uh, uh, a more recent attempt at communication to document to ask where is the manuscript, how far is it along, uh, received no response. On another occasion, Professor Neff noted that he had enjoyed no control over what Shikson Classic did with his documents in the Lingo conspiracy book and film, which is a, tradition, a traditional complaint of the Virgin in Hollywood for a long time. But Dr. Neff had control of and retained responsibility for assertions concerning the validity of the documents he supplied and the harmony of the conclusions he, Dr. Neff, drew from them. Therefore, I feel justified in adding approximately 225 footnotes of the Lincoln Conspiracy book derived from Neff sources to the uneasy footnote total, which is now approximately 485 out of 1,100 made. I add still another 20 references to the sloppy total uh, to the uncheckable mud collection, totally now 505 defective footnotes out of 1,100 made. Well, this is 45 to 50 percent unverified of unreliability and ludicrous error. Historians allow little more than 0% error, not counting typos, in graduate seminars and professional reviews. Well, actually, my effective footnote total for the Lincoln Conspiracy book is modest. Notwithstanding Schick's son house experts and James Bondish gimmickry, the Lincoln Conspiracy book contains at least a dozen more substantive basic errors of fact and derivative interpretation that are entirely or partially probably by reason of unreliable sources and poor documentation. I note the syllabi of faults compiled by the aforementioned Dr. William Davis and by Professor William Hanchett of California State University, San Diego History Department. In addition to the errors I've already noted, the Lincoln Conspiracy's dubious documents and analyses range from the allegedly found booth pocket notebook pages to the absolute blunders noted concerning the disproved boy in Ringa or booth to the logically silly and I think apparently spurious Lafayette Baker and Andrew Potter discoveries to the weird George W. Julian, who is on your quiz tonight, uh, manuscript journal entries that contradict or blindly ignore verifiable originals of the same dates in the George Julian manuscripts presently held by Indiana State University Library. The list of Schick Sun classic pictures errors in the Lincoln Conspiracy book is just too long for further Bermuda Triangle games. Messrs. Balsaker and Sedgers have appeared to have appeared to have endured a great deal of pain in order to achieve very little except profits. Balsaker notes in a Schick Sun classic publicity blurb that he fulfilled, spent three weeks, quote, researching in the National Archives, the Library of Congress, and a variety of contemporary books on the Lincoln assassination subject, end quote. Three weeks! <laughs> Serious historians spend months and years in depositories, some never come out. <laughs> I've been in and out of those he mentioned, others of you have. 
for 30 years, and I barely scratched their contents. What hardships Mr. Balziger endured in what he called my bizarre research odyssey. And boy, he used the word bizarre. I didn't. Let me quote his memorable prose. Quote, I recall Mr. Balziger's speaking. I recall that to reach one person on an island in the North Atlantic Ocean, I flew American Airlines, the Allegheny, and Pilgrim, and finally Yankee Airlines, where I have to load my own baggage and sit next to a dog. <laughs> and then there was another time when I examined 16 mummified bodies in a dark, musty East Coast basement. It was thought that one of the mummified remains might be that of John Wilkes Booth. End of Mr. Ball's good And yet we are asked seriously, yes, not to confuse this historical research operations with those of an 1890 Carnival Midway, a freak show. After all, among the aforementioned research advances, the Shitsun Classic Research Team included something called a psychological stress evaluators. Poop apparently used lie detectors, maybe on the booth mummies. <laughs> Obviously not on the living individuals who supply these alleged names. <laughs> but I note more seriously that lie detector test results are considered very uncertain by psychologists and psychiatrists. And that the results of such so-called lie detector tests are by no means universally admitted in many court jurisdictions. But enough. I don't want to spend more time in the Huxley's world, however decorated by honorary doctorates from Lincoln Memorial University. Perhaps improved evaluations of the Lynch Nap Mud manuscripts, not transcripts, will result from still another lawsuit, this one against Schick's son, being initiated by a Stanton, a real Stanton descendant, Mr. L. Stanton Dotson of Latrine, Illinois, who, Mr. Davis of Civil War Times Illustrated informs me, is suing Shikson Classic for damages resulting from misuse of the family name for property. Maybe on this lawsuit, these alleged documents will actually get to court so somebody can see them. Alternatively, as noted, Shikson Classic and its several consultants promised future revelations on the Lincoln conspiracy theme. Perhaps these sons of the Lincoln conspiracy will be better crafted than the father, or the mother, or both, maybe it's bisexual, uh, will be better crafted than the parents, and prove some or any of the sensational charges. If so, I will admit any error, and I will credit my mistakes and their rectitude. But I'm not too worried about that possibility. I am more worried about the public as well as the scholarly disservices the Lincoln Conspiracy Book and Film Committee. I fear for a future when history, our confidence in the past, is degraded to twistery. The Lincoln Conspiracy Book and Film are presented to the public as scholarly history through high-budget media sales promotion. Sufferers from the deceit include elementary and secondary students who are block book on cut trade field trips, which give the teachers field service credit, uh, into theaters that block booked on cut rate field trips supplied by Schick's Sun Classic into theaters to see the film. Neither the students nor I fear many of their teachers read corrected monographs. Will our future educated elite know only what the Lincoln Conspiracy film and book misportray about their subject? Consider recent media depictions about Custer 
Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, John Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, Lyndon Johnson, Martin Luther King, and Richard Nixon, and their male and female intimates. In the short run, these misportrayals are very likely to outshout footnoted correctives. Earlier misrepresentations about secession, the character of Negro Union soldiers, and of Reconstruction, such as those spawned by birth of a nation and gone with the wind, as examples, are tenacious. Historians worry very little about these high-quality fiction uh, and poetical recreations of actual persons and events, even if they are destroyed, because art can separate from history. But sometimes they combine in blessed manner. Stephen Vincent Benet's John Brown's body, McKinley Cantus Andersonville, Irving Stone's Sailor on Horseback, among others, Carl Sandberg, Lord Lewis, and others, join large literary talent with archival research as diligent as that performed by many academics. But these authors never confused their products with monographic research. Indeed, uh, they were superior in many instances to monographic research. Instead, these authors strove for and achieved historical verisimilitude and popular circulation that many campus-bound historians applauded and envied. Other times, academic scholars charted Alex Haley for inaccuracies and anachronisms in roots, as example, while praising his uh, overall historicity and artistic qualities. All of these things can occur, but this is not the time or the place to establish boundaries between art and scholarship beyond which historical novelists or dramatists should fear to tread. Ortega y Gasset's 1925 book of the humanization of art and notes on the novel warned novelists not to substitute costuming for communication, not to distort or to create facts in order to develop fiction. If and when the Lincoln Conspiracy book and film join history's minority of trivia and trash, will and dumb, which I'm depressingly sure, I am depressingly sure that when that occurs, others will take their place. Lincoln's murderers like John Kennedy's, they will attract profit seekers as well as scholars. But one of the scholars, University of Wisconsin historian David Rhodes, speaking to the Southern Historical Association members last year, concluded, quote, that the Kennedy assassination and its investigation contains the controversy, complexity, vitality, and documentary base of the proper historical subject, but with exceptions has not been accorded that stature. Until the assassination and its investigation is treated as any historical subject ought to be with all the tools of the remarkable discipline of history, it will remain a thing mysterious, endlessly confused, and constantly exploited. End of David Rome's statement. Well, I think this is sound advice for researchers in the labyrinth of the Lincoln Lady Scholarship, especially for chip, some classic self styled experts and hard working researchers. I tell myself not to feel malice for those who since 1865 have exploited the Lincoln assassination theme. But the Lincoln conspiracy book and film of 1977-1978 make Lincoln's advice to feel malice toward none very difficult to accept. Now I understand better how John Usher felt in 1885. Thank you very much.